Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we took readers on a trip to Everglades National Park, where contributing writer Kim O'Connell explored the Buttonwood Canal and Pineland hammocks in that park. And contributing photographer Rebecca Latson outlined how to enjoy three days at John Day Fossil Beds National Monument in Eastern Oregon. We also ran a story that reminded all park travelers how to brush up on their etiquette, so to speak, in the post-pandemic tourism world. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's episode, we pick up with the musings of Doug Lean. As a young national park ranger in the 1970s, Lean stumbled upon a poster promoting a Meet the Ranger event at Grand Teton National Park. It turned out to be one of 14 long-forgotten silk screen posters made under the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s to promote tourism to the national parks. In the 50 years since Lean's discovery, he has been searching high and low for the rest of the missing posters. His efforts have yielded noteworthy success, stirring up widespread interest in the posters and evolving into a thriving printing business of his own. As Lynn Riddick continues her talk with Doug, he discusses his business, Ranger Doug's Enterprises, and how the popularity of the posters has generated millions of dollars in revenue for the national parks. We also check in with Earl Brecklin, the communications director for Friends of Acadia, to get the latest on how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting that friends group and how it is responding. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Largely because of Lean's perseverance, 11 of the original 14 posters, plus duplicates, have been found, so 42 altogether. They are now safely housed at the Library of Congress, the Department of the Interior Museum, the NPS archives at the Harpers Ferry Center in West Virginia, and at a few individual parks. Lean has donated every poster he has personally found or owned to these outlets 
therefore ensuring responsible stewardship and bringing them into the public domain. And at his gentle but persuasive suggestion of a higher altruistic purpose, a few other private owners have followed suit with donations of their own. Some detective work and a handful of old black-and-white photos and negatives were essential in allowing Lean to start his business 27 years ago, creating his own version of the silkscreen images as faithful to the originals as possible. And eventually he recreated the entire set of 14 silkscreens, including two posters that have never been found. It all started with a request for a poster of the Jenny Lake Museum at the Grand Teton National Park. So your company sells the only silkscreen versions of these original National Parks posters, and therefore they're the most authentic. How did you transition from collecting the posters to reproducing them? Well, the reproductions were a slam dunk. I mean, that was the first thing I thought of. I said, these are so cool, and let's reprint it. Actually, the Grand Teton Park wanted a poster of the Jenny Lake Museum to commemorate this building. It's a historic building. And they called me up since I was a ranger in the building in the 70s. And, and I said, not only do I have a good idea for a poster, I've got the poster. And I sent it to them. I sent out a copy of it. And so we published this as a fundraiser for the park. And we charged 20 bucks for it. And uh, I split the cost. I, I paid for the printing. And, they, and we split the cost of the sale 50-50. And it was just a fundraiser for the park. And, and they were not interested in doing a second edition. And so, you know, essentially when I found these black and white negatives and said, hey, this is the holy grail, we can, I have enough information to recreate the whole set, albeit different colors. But it was an incredibly expensive thing to do. Each, all these screens had to be hand drawn, this is before computers. So we had to sit down with a black and white photograph and tell which of the eight gray colors were which. And there's lens aberration, there's all kinds of fading on the negatives. We had used several different densities. It took about five years and the cost of about $150,000 was generated by sales of these reproductions. So essentially, I worked for free for five years, just separating all these screens out. I paid an artist to do it, and I worked with him. And uh, it was funded by this, these reproductions. And so some parks said, yeah, we'll sell them, and other parks said no. And I sell parks that won't carry their prints. Uh, they just don't deem it historically valuable, I guess. But uh, anyway, that's how I funded this, this process, was through the sales. You've also created from scratch 35 contemporary serographs in the WPA mm-hmm. style. And I understand that you collaborate with the individual national parks in creating these new images. How does that typically work? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's just... In some ways, it's just been an absolute pleasure, and in others, it's just been horribly frustrating. And we had 13 negatives, and then I found two original New York prints that were not made by the Western Museum Labs. They, they have the Sea America banner on it, if you will, or two Sea America ones. This is the Alexander Ducks and the Frank Nicholson prints that we sell. So I had 13 black and white negatives and then two more parks. So that gave me 15. And I said, I need 16. I don't need 15 because you can't make up note card sets in seven and a half. You need a, an even number. So I needed to make up a 16th poster. And I kind of shopped around. And finally, I was at a trade show with a park service where I sold these others. And 
And Deb Liggett, who is superintendent of Devil's Tower, came up to me and said, would you make us a print that kind of fits in with this style? And I said, absolutely. So I drove over uh, to Devil's Tower from Seattle and, and camped out there for a week and walked around and took pictures and chatted with her. And, and uh, we came up with a sketch. And the, C the CCC built all their campgrounds there. They had all the original drawings, all it's beautiful. Uh, they saved everything. Just amazing. So I came away with a pretty good idea what I wanted to do. And so I hired my artist guy that sketched everything out. And, we, and I actually took some felt tip pens and drew out what I wanted right to the T. And it, it was very elaborately done. This was before computers. And then I handed it to my artist guy. And I said, make screens for this and finish the design. I kind of sketched some of it in and not. So we made the 16th print. And it sold better than the than the others. It, it it sold right alongside them, just that nobody cared whether it was a contemporary one or not. And it's still one of our strong sellers. And so I did a 17th and an 18th. And what prompted me to keep going more than just the, the getting to the magic number of 16 was is that a 17th did show up. <laughs> and what happened was Bandelier National Monument called me up and they said, we got a WPA print here. We'd like you to reproduce it for us. By then, this company I had was going strong. And I said, uh, are you sure it's made by the WPA? And Because it was completely off my radar. There are no photographs of it, nothing. And so they said, yeah, it says right at the very bottom, made by WPA-CCC, <laughs> which kind of settled the matter. And this was one that was made just before World War II, 1941. Later, we found out. So what happened was, is that, and I don't think C. Don Powell made this design because it's so different. I think another artist stepped in and made this. And it was a last minute order. And then Pearl Harbor happened and boom, the whole thing started producing war posters. And they started using lithography, offset printing. And so silkscreen was out, war posters were in and these WPA park posters came to a screeching halt. So I, all of a sudden I have a 17th print. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, I took the devil's tower out of the series and put in the bandolier side of all the historic parks together in my card sets. We sell these by note cards in sets of eight. So now I've got one extra <laughs> orphan. We call them orphans. So I had an orphan print and I said, well, I got to make seven more. So I started shopping this out to parks. And by then the word kind of got around. And the next park that stepped in was, um, was uh, Bryce Canyon. And Rob Dana was the chief ranger down there and just a prince of a guy. And Rob invited me down, and we walked around the park and got some ideas. And so by then, computers had been getting good enough, and the programming was good enough that we could actually do them on computers. And we just struggled. <laughs> we went to eight colors. We bumped the color. Every time we'd bump one color, the other seven would go off. And we had, uh, we had to hand draw in all the type. Uh, it was, but we did it. And uh, it got better from there. And these prints uh, were very popular. They, everybody, parks just started lining up, say, hey, can we get one? Can we get one? So we, I'm up to 50 park images now. And I've worked through most of the, the larger iconic parks and monuments. But to produce a print today, it's, it's somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000 commitment by the parks. And and we can, we can sell them. I've got enough history now that I know I can sell these. But I'm working into smaller and smaller parks that just can't, just can't afford or justify 
$20,000 expenditure. And today parks are strapped for cash. That's a whole different topic. But so I'm coming to the end of the screen printing phase, but I'm still going to make designs and we'll continue with cards and uh, maybe we'll have to print these lithographically. I kind of against that. I think I just always wanted to stay with the silk. silk screen. Well, let me ask you about, you know, you mentioned the note cards that your company sells. Of course, the posters, you've got luggage tags, stickers. How's <laughs> business since the stay-at-home directives were issued and virtually stopped traffic into the parks? You know, we're kind of recession-proof business. We sell nostalgia. And in the 2008 recession, we kind of had a hiccup. We flattened out just for one year and then boom, right back up. The centennial was, we tripled our sales, uh, of course, and then we dropped back again after a little sucking sound, if you will. <laughs> but we've always basically grown for two reasons. One is we're popular. It's just a good idea. And two is that we were adding more and more products and more and more parks. And this COVID thing is, it, this is a game changer. It's, it's, it's completely new in a lot of ways. This is not like the Great Depression or, you know, people want to go to work. They just can't. And uh, it will pass. I'm guessing we're going to, you know, our sales right now, we have wholesale and retail. We sell retail off the internet. And that's remained pretty good. But yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your wholesale and your retail volumes. The the wholesale is come to a screeching halt. Zero. Uh, we did get a couple orders. One from Yellowstone and one from uh, Hawaii, and they both kept their orders. Some have given us a thirty day, sixty day suspension, and some just say we'll call you when we're ready. It, we're not worried. It, the parks will rebound probably first. Uh, people, they will always visit their parks. It's it's healthful, psychologically, physically. This will be one of the first things to open. And it'll also, social distancing is kind of encouraged in parks. People get out and spread themselves out. And so I'm not worried whatsoever about this. Um, I'm very lucky. That's good. Now you have a licensing agreement with Ziga Media for printing your images on calendars and desk easels and cards and planners and puzzles. And so anecdotally, to me, it seems that lots of folks are working jigsaw puzzles these days. So <laughs> how are puzzle sales? Well, I, I just uh, read in the New York Times, I think, the how puzzle, everybody's putting puzzles together. And I sent this email, this article to Chuck Ziga, who own, owns Ziga Media. And he wrote back and sent me some pictures of his warehouse. It's just sealing the floor uh, with puzzles. He can't keep up with it. He can, but he's, he said he's never sold so many puzzles in his life. So, Doug, tell me about how you collaborate in the design of the new contemporary posters. Well, I'll be the first to admit that I am not an artist. In fact, I cannot draw a stick figure um, well. So, when I finished the historic reproductions, I knew that I would be progressing into new territories and, and, and coming up with new designs, but the, the artist that I had been using to draw, he was not interested. He, he was more of a ceramicist type artist. And so I quite serendipitously received a letter from a fellow that worked in the parks, Brian Mabius, and he lives in Austin, Texas. And uh, currently he was actually in Spokane at the time. And he wrote me and he sent me a couple of sketches of parks that he'd worked in and Badlands and Dinosaur. And uh, he already had figured out what I was doing, and and it was kind of 
in lockstep with what I wanted to do. And I said, well, why don't you come work for me someday? And once I get these historic prints done, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. And computers were just coming into their realm at the time. This was in 1995 and 96. The computers, of course, were there, but it was the software and design programs that were not robust. So Brian was always on top of this. He's a just a computer guru. I call him my computer guru. And he really gets the lion's share of some of these designs. Some of these he has nailed on the first submission and others we have gone back and forth like Bryce a hundred times. And usually what I do is I make a sketch. I visit the park. I talk to their people. I hike around and, and take a lot of photographs. And I come back and I sketch out on a piece of typing paper with a pencil, very crudely kind of where I want things. And Brian and I work really well together. He sees stuff I don't see. I see things that he doesn't see. It's, it's really, you know, I want to get, he gets 50% of the artistic credit on these. He attended the, participated in our presentation to the department interior. I flew him up to, to um, Washington for that. He's part of the, the team. He's an essential part. And uh, he's just a great guy to work with. What is so, the most popular park in terms of posters and other items sold that you've experienced? You know, at the very beginning, Grand Teton was the first print. And it led the pack even after I published the two Yellowstones. And then gradually, uh, I think the next big person to break the front line in the race, if you will, would, was Grand Canyon. And they, uh, we put in some high-quality displays in their bookstores, and that really made a difference. And then, in the, then Pacific Northwest, it's called Northwest, and it's called, um, they keep changing their name. But anyway, it's the National Parks in the Pacific Northwest. And a fellow named Jim Adams came in, and he was marketing, and he, he said, Doug, how come we're not selling your Mount Rainier print? And I said, that's a very good question. And uh, so we put in displays in those parks and boom, they race up to the front. It's all a matter of competing for, for advertising floor space in, within the park bookstores. And to give you an example, we just printed, <laughs> this is a funny story. I went down to, to Haleakala and three times and uh, went up to the park and said, we got to do a print of this park. It's uh, such a beautiful park, blah, blah, blah. And they said, no, we're, just, we're not ready. We're not going to do it. No, no. So I finally went down to Volcano on the Big Island and met a uh, wonderful Hawaiian woman that was the head of their um, archives. And she took out these beautiful old lantern slides. And so we made a night scene of this erupting volcano. And gosh, this thing, the first year we sold four prints, four. And the reason was they were just not advertising them right. And the Hawaiians are great, great people but they're not, they're not marketing people. <laughs> it's just not in their genes. I said, we've got to get some displays down there and blah, blah, blah. Well, better than the display, the volcano re-erupted. And the next year we sold uh, thousands of these things. We yeah. couldn't print them fast enough. <laughs> so then Haleakala calls me back and says, hey, we want to, now we want to print. <laughs> so we made them up a 10-color print. This is our most complex design today, 10 screens. And we sell it to the park for 20 bucks. We lose money on it. <laughs> this, actually, we lose money on this. It's, it's, I just want to do it. So they put up three displays. And last year, they outsold Yellowstone 
which has been kind of the leading print if you look at the big averages. And last year, Holly Akla, and I called him up. I said, what are you doing with these things? Burning them at campfire programs? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they were just selling these things off the wall. So anyway, it, it's kind of funny to watch this. Uh, some parks kind of blossom here and blossom there, and then they communicate with each other, and they can kind of compare sales. And they have these conventions and, and groups that get together and, and talk about marketing processes. And so this word gets out. And, and slowly parks kind of align themselves with better marketing practices. It's sad, but the the budgets of our parks, as everyone knows, have been cut. Just, it's obscene what we were doing to our national parks by cutting our funding. And and I talked to Ryan Zinke about this. And the, the, the deficit is now being made up through the parks sales of things. And so the parks are relaxing their standards. They're selling more stuff. And some of it is it could be better. You know, we're selling a lot of offshore trinkets that I just don't think belong in a bookstore. In fact, Bernie Sanders and I want to say Israel, what's his name? Jeff Israel. He's a New York representative in the house. And he and Bernie Sanders actually sponsored a bill to prevent offshore trinkets from being sold in national park bookstores. And I'm, I said, I'm your, I wrote Bernie Sanders and I'm your poster boy. Literally <laughs> we, we can do better, but it, it, that's a submission of mine. But uh, anyway, when I met with Zinke, you know, I said, we've got to fund these parks. It, that's, the, that's what I'm helping to do. The, what I, this whole business really is, is, is mainly to raise money for the national parks. They get the lion's share of these profits. And I'm having a lot of fun and I get to travel. So it's a win-win. But when I mentioned to Zinke, the, I said, you know, we just launched the the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier at $13.8 billion cost to the American taxpayer. This is the amount exactly that is the deficit of the national park budget. I said, we, our priorities are wrong. And I said, furthermore, Gerald R. Ford was a park ranger in Yellowstone. And so is his daughter, Susan. He would roll in his grave if he could see this aircraft carrier in the neglect of our parks. I said, you think about that. So Ryan Zinke's been thinking about it, but then he left. <laughs> well, hopefully you can carry the torch a little bit later with the subsequent administrations. What's your favorite poster? Can you even pick one or is it uh, Grand Teton? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're like your children, I guess. And, um, you know, you love them all, but they're all different. You know, I have to say the Grand Teton one is, it, it is the most unique of the others that I've done. It It's well, it's most unique of the originals, for sure. It's got different lettering. Um, it's it's four color only. It's it's highly stylized. But I'd have to say Teton is certainly one of my favorites. And we've we've recently done uh, ten color prints. I think we've got two now. We just did Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is just a a killer design, I think, and it's got Teddy Roosevelt's uh, visage in there and his, his 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 monocle and actually I think we gave him glasses and um, it's got an old CCC building in it, but it's ten colors and it's just a stunner. And uh, the other is the Haleakala one, and we find that the more interesting we make these, the better they do sell. Doug, I want to thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed learning about the national parks posters and you know, your efforts to preserve them for future generations and letting us enjoy them right now. I wish you the best of luck with your business and uh, 
I'll keep my eye out for those missing posters. I know you will. <laughs> I appreciate it. I will. I will have a. In fact, uh, I will right now offer a ten thousand dollar reward, and I will donate the print to the public domain if anybody has one that uh, that fits the description that I need. There are these last two. And it depends on the quality, of course. But uh, yeah, I'd really encourage people to keep their eyes open. They're going to be in an attic. They're going to be in California. And they are out there. And the $10,000 surely is an incentive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it would make my day. All right. Well, thank you again, Doug. And stay safe. All right. Nice chatting. Take care. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We're here today with Earl Brecklin from Friends of Acadia National Park, um, looking around the national park system to seeing how the coronavirus is impacting parks and friends groups that exist to help their parks. Earl, thanks for joining us today. It's um, springtime here in the United States, but I guess it's running a little late with you guys at Friends of Acadia because of coronavirus. Kurt, thank you for uh, uh, taking the chance to sit, uh, having the chance, excuse me, to sit down with you today. I yeah, it's uh, it's put a lot of things into flux. Um, we like many like the park and many other uh, friends groups uh, ramp up some seasonal operations with crews and volunteers and things that we do in the park. So 
we've had a lot of questions. Uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and we're, we're trying to deal with them every day. I guess um, one of the biggest impacts so far to Friends of Acadia is you've missed your spring cleanup for the first time in what, two decades? It's been almost 25 years and, and you know, it's a, it's a wonderful event where people from the communities fan out and, and pick up trash alongside the roads and then the state DOT comes along afterwards and, and picks it all up and uh, creates a lot of pride in the community and, and shows our commitment to not just working with the park, but the quality of life in the surrounding communities. And uh, we've had a couple other things. We, we started an annual gear sale and swap last year, which was really well received. And we've had to cancel that. And we're not going to do any formal observance of National Trails Day in June either. So, Wow. That's um, quite some retrenching, as it were. And I guess the park itself has pushed back its uh, traditional spring opening. Yeah, they have. Uh, traditionally, the Park Loop Road is open to motor vehicles on, on April 15th, and uh, that was closed on March 23rd to comply. The park's been working closely with Governor Janet Mills here in Maine, and they ordered that all facilities, restrooms, visitor centers, the motor roads, the carriage roads, which were closed for mud season anyway, be closed during this time period. So right now, the only openings they've announced are that the visitor center in Hulls Cove, which is the primary visitor center, uh, will open for the season on June 1st, and that uh, the campgrounds, Blackwoods and Seawell campgrounds, uh, will not open until June 15th. Wow. Wow. Now, at the same time, uh, Friends of Acadia, you folks have been able to to move ahead with some of your um, normal activities for this time of year in terms of uh, seasonal hiring and whatnot? Yeah, we have. We have our uh, Summit Steward Program, which um, uh, we're continuing with that. They assist the park. Uh, one of their bigger responsibilities is interfacing with visitors and teaching about Leave No Trace on top of Cadillac Mountain and keeping an eye on traffic and advising rangers when it's become congested so they can meter how much traffic goes up and down the mountain. And then our, our digital media team, which works with the park's interpretive staff, uh, helps man the equipment uh, that allows uh, folks to learn more about uh, nesting endangered peregrine falcons. And then they do video of programs and still images throughout the season. So uh, we're, we're bringing those people on and uh, it's still up in the air exactly what kind of a season we're going to have, but we're hopeful. Uh, we're proceeding on all of our programs uh, because the park still needs the help. Yeah, for sure. Um, are you guys working with the park to produce um, current time videos, so to speak? I mean, there's been a lot of virtual tours around the, the park system during National Park Week. And, you know, with some parks not knowing when they might reopen, I'm just kind of curious, you know, how you're engaging visitors. Well, actually, I'm glad you asked that question. We, uh, uh, partially in response to National Parks Week, we launched a, a, a total package of uh, web pages uh, on on Thursday, just yesterday, that help, to help people stay connected to Acadia during this time of COVID-19. And one of the uh, from from the landing page, you can find out the latest news and updates on closures and and uh, policy changes and things of that nature. Uh, we also have a, a section with graphics and some cool animations about making good decisions about recreating in the outdoors and maintaining social distance and personal safety. 
We have a section called Virtual Acadia where we've had hikes where we've actually done video hikes and our digital media team has done in the past where folks can actually experience that hike. We have huge photo galleries online. We have other videos about programs and, and a cool little Acadia bingo game that you can download and play with your kids. And, and then in addition, we have a, an Acadia is for kids section with links to online lesson plans, things that folks can do. And a local artist has done a special coloring page that uh, people can download the PDF and print it out at home and, and uh, do that as well. Yeah, nice. And I guess uh, all the uh, readers and listeners have to do is go to friendsofacadia.org and uh, pretty easy to find those pages. It, it's, uh, it's, it's linked right on the front of our, our, our homepage. Uh, we've been pushing it out a lot through our Facebook and social media. And uh, we, we sent out, we do a regular monthly e-news, which we put out some news about that as well. And, and so, you know, I think people, even when they're not able to be out in the park, they would like to come here or they would like to come here, but may not be able to do so this summer or, or feel comfortable doing that, that, that they can stay connected with the park and with the, the good work that the park does. And, and uh, through that, uh, understand a little more about Friends of Acadia. Sure, sure. Now, um, I can't believe it's almost the end of April, which means May is right around the corner. And you guys have a special Mother's Day um, initiative going on. Right, we do. And and uh, just to help connect people, we have a special Mother's Day card that people can, can download and, and, and that way uh, help support Friends of Acadia and, and, and honor the important women in their, their life as well. Yeah. Any idea how the ongoing um, pandemic will affect Friends of Acadia operating in the in the park this year? Well, you know, our, our operations uh, we we will key off what the what the park ultimately does, its closure status, or uh, how operations may be affected. Certainly, our volunteer operations, which you know, we f- we fielded more than ten thousand volunteers last year just uh, will be affected by social distancing requirements and, and safety. And, and then a lot, because Acadia is so intertwined with the surrounding communities, a lot's going to depend on uh, what happens there. there. The cruise ships have been uh, canceled through the end of June here in Bar Harbor. Part of that was because they were also canceled in Canada, where they travel to and from before they come here. Um, so that's an effect. Right now, Lodging places are closed through April 30th, uh, per order of the governor. Uh, you know, Bar Harbor has three or 4,000 hotel rooms and campsites that uh, how that's all affected by other orders will make a big difference of what goes on in the park. Yeah. And um, no, no word on when the park might try and reopen? No, I think the, the only firm dates they have are, like I said, are the visitor center and the campgrounds. Visitor center June 1 and campgrounds June 15. And, uh, you know, traditionally, they, they like to have their physical facilities up and running by Memorial Day, just as far as all their seasonal water systems turned on and, and blowdowns cleared up. And, and I think that uh, the, the park has been cooperating with the state as far as essential personnel. A lot of park folks are working from home, but they still have their field crews out getting things ready so that when, that, when the time is right, uh, the park uh, should be able to reopen. Any idea um, with those dates, uh, June 1st for the Holes Cove Visitor Center and June 15th for the, the park campgrounds, if, if those actually open on those dates, will folks be able to, to head out to the carriage roads or some of the hiking trails? 
Well, I, I would, I think that, you know, an inference would be that if, if you're staying in the park or coming to the visitor center, hopefully there would be other things for you to do than actually just go to those two places or three places and sit. But, uh, you know, the park's been careful and, and it's fully understandable about uh, committing to any kind of an opening date, uh, you know, based on science recommendation from the Maine CDC and National CDC and others. So I think that uh, we're just going to have to wait and see on that. Yeah. We've been talking today with Earl Brecklin, the communications director for Friends of Acadia, um, just checking in on Acadia National Park and how things are returning back to normal or not returning back to normal during the coronavirus pandemic. Earl, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Kurt. Thank you for all you do for national parks. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check our website, nationalparkstraveler.org, regularly for the latest news on the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the national park system. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.